Hey coaches, it's Lauren, Director of Coach Education with the ITA, welcoming you back with a special podcast to start off the new year and the spring season. Andres Pedroso is in his second stint with the University of Virginia after serving as the Associate Head Men's Coach from 2010 to 2014. He was named the Head Men's Coach in 2017 and since then has won back-to-back NCAA National Team Championships in 2022 and 2023. He is a three-time ACC Coach of the Year, three-time ITA Atlantic Region Head Coach of the Year, and was twice named the ITA National Coach of the Year. In this podcast, Dave and Andres discuss his fascinating background, having worked on Wall Street and flirting with a career as a sports agent. They also talk about the importance of scheduling, recruiting the right fit, and how Andres deals with the pressures of being a top D1 coach. You won't want to miss this one as a way to get your season started. Enjoy. Andres Petroso, uh, thank you for joining me on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, no, I know our, our coaches will be thrilled to hear from you and all your success in, in recent years and and hopefully another successful season ahead of you. But we, we won't get it. We'll be looking more back than forward uh, in today's conversation. But talking about going back, you, you've not had the most traditional journey to to the top of Division One college tennis. You've had a, a few different stops along the way. You've, you've explored other professional opportunities, other industries that I'm sure have informed uh, how you coach today. But can you summarize maybe a few of your stops after your playing career at Duke and then your professional tennis career? Where did you go from there? So I, I come from a banking family, uh, my dad and my uncles, grandfather, uh, they were in the banking industry. And so when I stopped playing professional tennis, the logical step was to try something new and it was finance in New York. So I tried, tried my, my shot at wall street and it lasted a little over a year, uh, worked at Bear Stearns, um, and on the institutional equity sales desk. And so it was an equity trading floor and we were selling stock ideas, IPOs, equity research. And I didn't know anything about finance when I got the job. And so it was an incredible learning experience. I felt like I was going to get fired every single day for like the first six or eight months. And, but it really taught me how to communicate. Uh, It really, it really exposed me to something completely different. And, you know, on, in equity research, you're, you are exploring all different types of industries and analyzing all these different companies. And then you're trying to sell it to people um, to invest in the stock through your traders Mm -hmm. so that your bank can make a commission. And so it was something completely brand new, but I learned a ton. And so I did that for a little over a year and I just, I didn't love it. And I just knew that I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to maximize because I didn't love it. I wasn't passionate about it. And so from there, I started interviewing with other banks in New York. And after I went through a couple more interviews, I decided, you know what, finance just might not be the, the right path for me. Mm-hmm. And then I started interviewing at, at sports management companies like IMG and, and ProServe. Um, and so went down, went down that, that interview process. And then I just decided, you know what, I want to be a coach and started working privately with a young American named Ryan Williams who's a unbelievable ATP coach now. 
works with Dominic Kopfer, former college player from Tulane. And, and then from there, I went back in, that lasted about a year and a half. And I went back into finance uh, to my surprise in Miami. And I helped start a small family office in Miami, uh, directly tied to an accounting firm that was looking to invest their accounting clients savings. And so we started this family office and then like a year into the job, I got a job. I got a call from, you know, one of my idols, Jose Higueras, uh, to, and Jay Berger, actually it was, I think it was Jay Berger who called and Jay called and, and offered me a job as a national coach at the USTA. And, and I met with Jose in Boca Raton and it was just kind of a dream job for me. Jose was just done working with Federer. And so what an unbelievable opportunity to work under those two coaches. And so I did that for a little over a year as well. And, and then Brian Boland called, uh, asked if I would be interested in being his assistant. And after I said no three times, the fourth time I, I said yes, typical <laughs> Brian. Um, he just kept pushing. But um, And then I was the assistant here for four years, left after four years for a private coaching job um, in Boca Raton with a family that has become part of my own family, unbelievable relationship. And it was a great experience. And then I was lucky enough to be considered for the head coaching job here at UVA. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite, quite the story and, and fascinating how, how you've kind of gone from one industry to, to another. I mean, specifically your time on wall street, you got into it a little bit and, and especially that pressure of feeling like you're going to get fired every day. Cause you don't have a clue what you're doing kind of thing, or, or you're trying to learn on, on the job. What are some things specifically that you've applied from that time there to kind of the pressure cooker that you're in now? So being on the equity trading floor, it's, it's a service job. You are providing a service to hedge funds, mutual funds, pension funds. You're providing them with research. You're providing them with ideas. You're, you're helping them network with, with different people on the street. And, and so I really learned how to provide a service. I learned how to communicate. I learned how to get people information the way that they wanted to receive it. Um, some people wanted a phone call. Some people wanted an email. Some people wanted a text. Some people wanted to meet in person. Some people were very specific about the type of information they wanted about each stock and each company. And some people wanted a general overview. Some people wanted a morning call at 7 a.m. Some people didn't want to hear from you until lunchtime or so just learning how to communicate and learning how to funnel um, the, you know, what people want uh, in terms of the information that they'll need to be successful and just providing a service. And I think that's really been invaluable to me as a college coach, because that's how I see this role. I really feel like our coaches and our staff are serving the student athletes and providing them with an experience that's preparing them for life and teaching them how to communicate is a big, big part of that. Because if you communicate well, you're probably going to be okay in life. Yeah. And Andres, how do you balance that, that serving mindset? Because I think that's something a lot of coaches struggle with. It's like, yes, we want to provide a great experience for our student athletes. We want to serve them in the best way. We want to mold them for, for the future. But if, if, they consider us our, uh, their servants, shall we say, that they can walk all over us, take advantage. 
uh, of the situation, not not truly appreciate kind of the gifts that they're being given. H how do you walk that fine line of being kind of a, a service minded coach, but also holding the team and players accountable for very high standards? Well, I, I think as a college coach, I've become more confident with each year that I've been in the role. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, some success helps. And so I think it's really important to, to understand that part of the service that you are providing these young men and women is a structure. And within that structure are parameters and lines that, that they can't cross for their own good. And, and what I've learned is that, is that these young people, they, they, they crave structure. They crave those lines that, that they're going to push you to cross and they want you to hold them to those standards and hold them to that structure. And that's been a big lesson for me as a head coach. One of the tough parts of uh, coaching for me is, is being tough on my players. That's always been a challenge for me. I've, I always have the tendency to be a little too nice and, and too friendly and, and just, just not be tough enough. And, and I've gotten better at it as I've, as I've coached longer but it's really important for coaches to know that, that, you know, these kids do want honesty. They do want structure. They do want parameters and lines that, that they can't cross. And, and you really have a great chance of holding them to that and holding them accountable, accountable towards that structure. If you have the relationship, if you don't have the relationship with them, then they're just going to see you as, as a superior and someone that's talking down to them. So you know, first and foremost, you have to have the relationship in order to have that honesty and that structure with your players, which is a huge part of the service that that you're providing. Because guess what? The structure and the lines that they can't cross, they're only going to be they're only going to be that tougher and stricter when they go out in the real world. Yeah. And how have you found ways to build that trust, build that relationship with the players? Because that takes time. And and before you know it, the four years are up and, and obviously it starts in the recruiting phase, but are the things that you do specifically or is it just letting it happen authentically? Sometimes it happens, you click quicker with play, uh, some players more than others or, or, or are you more intentional about it? It's pretty simple. You just have to spend a lot of time with them and ask a lot of questions and show them that you're genuinely interested in who they are and what makes them tick. And you also have to be super vulnerable in front of them. I'm very vulnerable in front of my players. I apologize to them all the time when I make a mistake. Um, I, I talk to them about some of my own problems as well and ask them for advice. And, and I, I try and make the relationship as, as equal as possible when we're having these, these types of conversations, like when we're getting to know each other. Um, and then there are times where obviously I need to be a little bit above, above them in my approach, uh, when it comes to these conversations, mm -hmm. when I'm mentoring them and coaching them and advising them, but it's, it's just about spending a lot of time with them. I, I find that the best coaching happens over meals way, way more than, than on the court, on the court, the emotions are flowing. You know, we tend to be a little stubborn, especially if we're really good competitors and we're going to stick to what's comfortable um, so having meals with your players is is invaluable. Having coffees with them, opening up your home to them, you know, helping, giving them a chance to see you as a father, as a husband with your kids. 
um, just what real life is all about. So I think it's just about spending time with them and going above and beyond to, to show them a level of dedication off the court, especially off the court that, that I think means a lot to them in the end. Mm -hmm. So going back to kind of your previous lives, you, you mentioned that you had an interest in going down the road as, as a sports agent. And I listened to your podcast with the UVA president and you told a story about your, your kind of pivotal conversation that you had with Donald Dell that kind of set you on a different path. Can you retell that story? I think it's fascinating. <laughs> so this was, in, this was at the end of the interview process with what used to be called ProServe. I think Lagardere bought ProServe, um, but ProServe was Donald Dell's uh, management company, and he's one of the most famous sports agents in the in the world in the history of the industry. And so my last interview was with him in D.C., and I remember sitting down with him and him saying, Andres, I'm about to offer you this job, but I need you to consider a scenario before you take it. At a U.S. Open final, do you want to be the guy in the suit worrying about the deals regarding the player on the court in the U.S. Open final that you're representing? Or do you want to be the guy in the tennis clothes worrying about the match? And immediately, it my, you know, my gut just told me that I want to be the guy in the tennis clothes worrying about the match. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't know if I said it right then and there, but we definitely either had a phone call or I said it right then and there. And, and I said, you know, I want to be the guy in the tennis clothes. And he said, okay, well then don't take this job. And so that's when I really uh, realized that I wanted to be a coach. Mm -hmm. um, even though a year and a half down the line, I still went back into finance, but even when I was a player, um, I, I knew that I knew deep down that there was a good chance that I was going to be a coach one day. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was a, an eye opening moment for me when, when I had that conversation with, with uh, yeah. Donald Depp. Yeah, no, and and I was uh, just so um, I guess impressed or, or blown away by by the honesty. You're standing in front of this legend. He's asking you this challenging question, and and you, you gave a very honest answer because there's still part of you that that probably wanted that job or wanted that experience, but you're really honest with yourself. And when you talk about um, having those thoughts of becoming a coach, was it specifically college coaching or was it coaching pros or it didn't really matter at that time. Uh, yeah, I, I really wasn't specific with it. I just wanted to connect with people through the game of tennis. Okay. And I just think tennis is such an unbelievable sport to, to coach people through life. And there's so many scenarios that you face on the court where it's so apl applicable to life. And I, I just played a set with one of our uh, women's players uh, the other day, literally like two days ago. Mm -hmm. and just the nerves you feel at the beginning of a set, even if it's a practice set right. and the thoughts that grow through your head and the stories that you play. And you can just, you can just get yourself into to a whole lot of mental trouble real quick. If you don't have the awareness of it and, and you don't have the ability to reset, uh, which I'm sure everyone, you know, I don't know how many people are listening to this podcast, but probably not too many, but uh, I'm sure a lot of I'm sure a lot of them watched Novak's 60 minutes mm -hmm. and and just how he corrected the the person interviewing him when the interviewer said, you know, one of your gifts is your mental strength. And he actually interrupted him. He actually took the time to interrupt him and say, whoa, 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 that it's not a gift. That is something that I've worked on for many, many, many years. 
And it's mm-hmm. something that I developed. And I think that was that was so huge for me when he did that, when he took the time to interrupt the interviewer, I said, wow, like this just shows how important the mental side is. And so totally off topic, but I really think it's it's so helpful for coaches to go out there and compete and and play as just a reminder of how hard this sport is. It's mm-hmm. so hard yeah. um, just because yeah. we get in our own way. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I don't hit much anymore, but I hit yesterday and played a few points and the same silly things come back in your head. It's it's just fascinating and it's yeah. it's it's meaningless, right? I'm out there just playing on a on a random Wednesday or whatever day it was yesterday. So um yeah, it's funny. Um but going now back the last couple of years, so in twenty twenty two you started five and five and obviously you're playing a really difficult schedule. Um but you then won, won 17 matches in a row, win the national championship, and then same in 2023, got off to a, a relatively slow start for a, a national champion. You lost twice to Ohio State, turned around at the end of the year, beat them for the, the national championship. So are, is there anything that you're doing um, to periodize your training plan to peak in May? Is that is that the goal at the beginning of whether it's August or January that, Hey, we're not going to worry about these results early on. We're going to put in the work and we're going to be at our best in May. Yeah. I mean, listen, when you, when you go to, when you choose to come to Virginia, it's, it's an unspoken goal to, to try and win national championships every year. And, and I think the coaches, the staff and the student athletes all believe that it's more fun that way. Um, You know, there's, we, we try and win every match. I'm, I'm not going to sit sure. here and say that January and February doesn't mean anything to us. We try and win every match, but you know, we've just had a tough time um, in January and February, the last two years, it's probably because, you know, the schedule is really hard and um, maybe it's because we don't really have set doubles teams in the fall and we mix it up a lot. And a lot of our focus in the fall is, is singles play just because we have a lot of players on the team that want to play at the next level. And so when they want to play at the next level, mostly in singles. So we really focus on singles in the fall. So maybe it's because we don't do enough doubles work in the fall. Um, in the, during the, during winter break, you know, I really give these guys space and, and I let them, I let them handle winter break uh, the way they want to handle it. And they, they usually always come back in, in good shape physically um, but yeah, we might be a little rusty match play wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, I think I definitely pace, pace myself in terms of how hard I push these guys throughout the year along with our staff. Um, but at the end of the day, I just have such a, I have such an enjoyable team to coach. Uh, I've learned to choose really wisely when it comes to the players that I bring on my team. And I give all the credit to the guys because, we've been through a lot of tough times, especially the last two years and they've handled it so well. They've been so mature. They come from great families. You can just tell that they've been raised the right way with the right values. Mm-hmm. They take constructive criticism really well. Um, you know, somebody told me when I first got the head coaching job here, don't ever expect your players to care as much as you, because it's just not realistic. And I feel like, like this group of, these fourth years that I have this year, um, you know, the Ryan Getzes, the William Woodalls, 
um, the guys that have formed the, the the nucleus of our team over the last two years, they they might care as much as as I do, as much as our coaches do, and they've just learned to love this place, and they've learned to appreciate the service that that I think our staff and our coaches have provided them, and and they've tried to meet us halfway. Um, so I, I give the players all the credit in the world because a lot of the situations that that we've gone through. I don't know if if other student athletes their age would have handled it the same way they did. And, and they've given me the green light to be honest with them and provide them with that structure and 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 really give them my real opinion as to what we need to do to get better. And they've handled it unbelievable. So it's a it's a credit to them. Yeah, no, it sounds that sounds like a dream job. That sounds like a lot of a lot of fun. And, and uh, again, more more success coming your way because of that in in the years to come um but with that as you're talking about choosing wisely and and maybe this goes back to what we were discussing about your time in in the world of finance but how do you feel like you've gone about identifying those individuals what what are you looking for specifically what conversations are you having with them or the people around them like you said they come from great families how, how are you determining that how, do you have a process or again, is it trusting your instincts based on all your experiences to date? Yeah, I think that the number one key indicator that I look for in recruiting, you know, especially when the skill sets are all the same, if I'm talking to a lot of great players, uh, what sets them apart is their ability to communicate their ability. Like what is what the frequency of their communication? How do they express their interest? How do they have uncomfortable conversations with me? Uh, how do they handle when I'm really honest with them? Um, I've learned to be really honest in the, in the recruiting process, just so that there are no surprises and that they understand who I am and how we do things and, and what we expect of them. And, and, and so communication is huge. Um, so I think that's probably the number one characteristic that I look for uh, when the skill sets are all the same. Um, I also look at how they compete, you know, how often do they look at their coach on the sideline when they're playing matches? Are they pretty independent out there? Um, you know, how do they leave it all out there no matter what? I mean, how do they, how do they behave and how do they handle when they're not playing well? And, you know, usually first round matches are never about tennis. So first round matches are really great for me to watch just to watch them mm. um, in those tough situations. Um, and then another thing is, is how much do they love the game? If they love the game, that means they're going to be excited to practice. They're going to want to talk tennis. They're going to want to learn. Um, you know, they're going to be open-minded about different suggestions to their game. Um, so I'd probably say that, you know, communication, competitiveness, and, and love for the game are, are things that I look for in, in recruits for sure. And then with the last couple of years, Andres, with the with the tough schedule that you've played and, and the tough schedule you're about to play again in, in 2024, is that something you would recommend for, for coaches to consider? Because I think a lot of coaches think about playing their way into the season. They schedule a little easier, try and grab some wins, maybe build some confidence, but maybe it's not. It's maybe fake confidence, not really helping the players. Is it better for them to maybe have some tough matches, even some tough losses that will then propel them going forward for the rest of the season? Or, or how do you think about that? I think you have, I think if you, if you believe you have a really good team, I don't know. I've always been of the philosophy that 
the more you challenge them, the more they're going to grow. And, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of, a lot of success, a lot of growth, a lot of development comes from a lot of pain in losing. And, and it's so funny because probably the most comfortable I've been in this job has been when it's been the most painful because you almost feel like after you lose two in a row or three in a row, it's just like, you almost feel like you have nothing to lose anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you can actually get to the root of certain problems. Mm. And you almost find like a comfort level there. And, and so, you know, there's a, there's a great quote that in 2019, our basketball coach who's an absolute legend, uh, Tony Bennett, he talked about, the year before in 2018, they lost in the first round to UMBC, first number one seed in the NCAA tournament to lose to a 16 seed. And then the year after, and I mean, and, and he just got criticized and, you know, everyone was calling us chokes. And the year after they win the national championship and he talks about this podcast that his wife gave him. And the whole, the whole theme was if you use adversity in the right way, it'll take you places you never dream, you, you could never dream of. Mm-hmm. And and that really stuck with me. And, and so I think it's really tough because no one wants to be uncomfortable and no one wants to feel that pain of losing, but it's actually so necessary if you're going to develop and you're going to grow. And the more you convince, you can convince your guys that it's good for them, especially now, if they don't give their best and they don't compete super hard and they lose, then you can't get as much out of it. But right. if they compete super hard and they lose, you can get so much out of it because then you can actually talk about tennis. You can actually talk about X's and O's. Mm-hmm. But if they don't do the mental work and they don't compete, then then there's no point in talking tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think our team has just kind of learned that that losing is is good for them. And and it's it's a really it's a necessary part of of success. Yeah, that's um it's hard though. No, <laughs> yeah, no, nobody wants to lose. But I mean, going into 2024, I know this is again probably you don't want to say this this publicly, but I'll I'll go here. I mean, obviously, like you said, you want to win every match, but would you have any concerns this year if the start of the season goes too well and you guys you know, have a 17 match win streak right out of the gates. I mean, I guess you'll take the wins, but how are you thinking about that? I mean, it sounds like you want to go through some adversity early on to apply those lessons at a later okay. date. Um, my style as a head coach is I have a really tough time planning for the future. Okay. I'm I'm very off the cuff, day-to-day, gather facts, and making decisions on a daily basis in terms of each student athlete on the team and the group as a whole. So honestly, when it comes to this season, I'm taking it one practice at a time, one day at a time. Um, I didn't see the the success in May over the last two years coming. Right. Um, I really didn't. And so it's just a day at a time process. Um, and, and that's, that's how I've done it. And, you know, it means that I'm constantly thinking about the program. I'm constantly thinking about the team. I'm constantly talking to my assistants. Um, you know, I have an unbelievable relationship with our women's head coach, women's tennis coach, and I'm brainstorming with her and we're exchanging ideas. And we have a great culture here at UVA amongst the head coaches. And I'm 
popping into, you know, other coaches offices and brainstorming with them and exchanging ideas. So it's, it's kind of a day-to-day process and I'm constantly, you know, reaching out to people and asking them for advice because I, I definitely don't have all the answers. I still consider myself a young and inexperienced coach and, and, um, so, so yeah, I just think it's day to day. Yeah, no, very good. Um, so the old saying is that you never want to follow the legend. You want to be the person that follows the person that followed the legend. So, you know, Brian obviously went in there to, to UVA and, and, you know, I think UVA's had some, some good players through the years. They didn't necessarily have, you know, championship winning teams for many years, but, but he went in there and, and built the program to a whole new level. Did you have any concerns about following Brian and, and matching that success and, and kind of the expectations that now come with being the head coach at UVA? It's funny. We played Illinois my first year. I think it was at the end of January indoors at Illinois. And, and I ran into Brad dancer, obviously. And Brad came up to me said, hi, right before the match. And he said, well, you and I are the only ones crazy enough to take the job after <laughs> our predecessors. So good luck. Enjoy the ride. <laughs> and I really didn't know what that meant <laughs> at the time, but uh, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Um, but the difference between Brad and I is the, the difference is, is that I worked for the legend for four years and, and he involved me in all aspects of the program, except scholarship negotiations Hmm. he always said that's for me but everything else he really involved me in it and he gave me a lot of responsibility and he trusted me and he introduced me to everyone in the community that he could and just really ingrained me in the the whole uva men's tennis program and experience so when i got the job um you know he set me up for success in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. so so I, I felt like I had an advantage there and I knew how it worked and I knew what made them successful. And so there were, there were a lot of things that I didn't change and it took me a little while to put my, my stamp on it. Um, but, but yeah, you know, it was, <laughs> it's UVA. It's a great, great place. Um, if you can't recruit here, you can't recruit because it's just a beautiful place. It's a great academic institution. Um, Charlottesville's awesome. So um so, you know, if you're going to, if I was going to take a risk and, and try and, and come after somebody as successful as Brian, it would be at a place like this and, and, and behind everything, you know, he showed me while, while yeah. we worked together. And so what were some of those things that you did learn from Brian when you were the associate head coach there that just uh, was maybe new to you? I mean, you had been coming from, again, these other industries, the coaching pro tennis college he obviously played college tennis but coaching on this side was relatively new to you I mean what are some things that you learned there that again you're you're applying to your day-to-day now so I used to describe my time um, as an assistant as investment banking of college tennis and and it was a level of dedication for the student athletes under Brian that was just unbelievable and and I've that's probably the biggest lesson and something that I've tried to carry forward is just being totally dedicated to the guys on the team and just answering on the first ring and and 
and being there for them through thick and thin and helping them, advising them academically and, and helping them meet our alums and and giving them advice across all aspects of their life and just always being there for them. And so that's the biggest lesson I learned from Brian because he was completely and utterly dedicated to the student athletes in every way, shape and form. And Becky, his wife was the same way, his whole family. This was a family affair. Um, so that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned from him yeah. is that. And then the other thing is, is just building a community around the program. When I got here, there was a big community that he built around the program and I've tried to expand it and, mm -hmm. and I've tried to keep people passionate about the program and, and by staying in touch with them and, you know, giving them, you know, some great stories about the guys and things that we've been through. And, and I think people love that. And so it's probably that it's probably the dedication to the student athletes and, and building the community around the program. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And then, Again, going into this this year, um, do you feel more pressure now to to repeat or or less? Because you've gone into the last couple of years not necessarily thinking you're going to win a national championship. Obviously, that's what you want to do, but maybe we're we're an outsider going into the tournament. Uh, you know, you weren't necessarily the odds-on favorite to do that. But I guess where I'm leading with this, Andreas, is is how do you manage the pressures of being a, a division one college coach? I think this is something that there's a lot of emphasis on the mental health of our student athletes, but, but not as much discussion around the mental health of, of our coaches and, and the challenges that they face. And you've got three young kids, you're, you know, you're, you're all in it. You're trying to be a, a father to your three young kids, but also kind of be a father figure to all these players on your team as well. And now you're going to hit the road and you're going to deal with the the pressure of trying to win another ACC title, another NCAA championship. H how do you manage all that and, and keep your sanity in check? I think it's just reminding yourself how many pieces of the puzzle exist when it comes to, to winning and that a lot of those pieces are out of your control. Hmm. Uh, we could have easily lost early in the NCAA tournament two years ago. We could have easily lost early in the NCAA tournament last year. It comes down to a point. It comes down to a little bit of luck. It comes down to, you know, your guys being healthy. It, it, it just, there's so much out of your control when it comes to winning a conference championship or winning a, a national championship, especially. And so I, I really think the healthiest way is to not chase any titles, to not chase any results. Now, listen, I'll be honest with anyone listening. I have my, my bad days and I have my days where I'm playing stories in my head that, oh, my gosh, everybody expects you to win. Everybody expects you to win. But that's what our brain does. Our brain fills us a lot of times with just false information. And so we need to be really aware when that false information shows up and put it aside and get back to what really matters. And so what really matters is taking really good care of ourselves with the way we sleep, with the way we eat, how much exercise we're doing, what are we reading? You know, are we spending some time on our faith every day? Um, like doing things like that so that when you go through really tough times, you're at your best and you're more articulate, you're more thoughtful, you're more patient, you're not as emotional. And then you can actually provide a great service for these student athletes when they really need you. Um, because if you don't take great care of yourself 
and those times come, you're not going to be as good for them as you would be if you were really taking great care of yourself. And so that's been a big lesson for me as a head coach is that if there's something wrong with me, there's probably going to be something wrong with the team. And so part of the blessing of this job is that it forces you to be at your best and, and to constantly fine tune yourself and reinvent yourself according to the group of guys that you're coaching. And, and then you can be at your best for them and they're going to go through tough times and they need you to be at your best um, and again, I've made an insane amount of mistakes and I apologize to my players all the time. Um, and I think that apologizing to your players actually gives you more credibility with them long-term because they're like, all right, well, this guy just admitted to me that he screwed up. He admitted to me that he's flawed, that he's stressed. And so it's easier for them to be vulnerable with you if you're vulnerable with them. Um, so I think, I think the pressure's real, but you got to catch yourself when you're playing those stories in your head. Mm -hmm. um, listen, if you, if you get a job, if you get a head college coaching job, you're probably, you probably have some pretty cool and special things about you that almost guarantees you that you're always going to have a job. And so you've got to have that belief that no matter what happens, that you're probably going to have a job and you're going to be able to provide for your family and you're going to be okay. And so having that belief gives you the confidence to make tough decisions and provide that structure within that service that you provide your student athletes. And, but that comes with time. I'm, I'm better at it now. I'm still not great at it, but I'm better at it now than I was my first year. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's just a process. And I think having mentors is huge. So I would really encourage college coaches to have mentors because, you know, the older college coaches can, can kind of, coach you through those tough times when you're playing crazy stories in your head and it happens to all of us. So um, you just can't listen to them because they'll drive you down a rabbit hole that, that can get you in trouble. Right. And then with the last two national championships, because they were, were relatively unexpected, were you able to enjoy them or, or was it, you know, the next day, okay, well, I need to figure out how I'm going to win this again next year. Again, that's a terrible story to play in your head. <laughs> but, but the story showed up for sure. It did. Okay. The story showed up. Yeah. Um, but again, I just I try to put it aside and and of course I enjoyed it. I mean, the the dinner after winning the national championship is within our program is just something so special. Yeah. And it's just something that is so fun and it's so fulfilling. Um, to hear the the players and the parents and the coaches talk about the experience and everything that we went through. Mm -hmm. um, and no, I've definitely enjoyed them. I've definitely enjoyed them. And I, and I, I think I've enjoyed them because I just know how rare they are and that they might not happen again. Sure. You know, they yeah. might never happen again. And so I've really taken the time to enjoy them. And so, and I think my, I think the players have as well. And, and, and yeah, so good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you. You have enjoyed them, and and that's the thing. Like nobody can take that away. You'll you'll always have those memories for for the rest of your life, and and the the memories that you've created for those student athletes, and they've created for themselves. I mean, that's uh, that's very yeah. special indeed. So, 
Well, just, I mean, you, 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 you've admitted or stated that you still view yourself as a relatively inexperienced coach, which is quite funny to me and, and probably others listening. But again, this is, uh, you know, you, you have, you didn't come out of college and go straight into college coaching and be an assistant coach. And then you've taken a different kind of tour here. So um, also when you say that it's, it's quite believable because you haven't spent as many years as, as others, uh, have done that. So how do you continue to challenge yourself as a coach, stay motivated and continue to learn to be better? I mean, I'm constantly reaching out to people for advice, um, you know, reaching out to college coaches or reaching out to people across all different types of industries, um, I, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and I, I read a lot about us presidents because mm -hmm. I feel like they have the toughest job in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I'm fanatical about reading about presidents and hearing how they handled certain situations and, and, and just all the, all the tough decisions they had to go through. Um, so I'm, you know, I have my little brain trust. I've got my small group of people that I go to that for advice and, and I learn from. Um, I learn a ton from the players. Um, they all have their strengths and a lot of their strengths I don't have. So I really, again, I'm super vulnerable with the guys and and I allow them to teach me and, and, and I, and I'm quick to, to, to say, maybe I made a mistake here um, so that I can be open-minded as to what they can teach me. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to have great assistant coaches um, in Scott Brown Tret Huey, Sanam Singh, uh, now Brian Rasmussen, um, my assistant coaches, I've really chosen wisely and, and they've, they've really helped me a lot and they've been great sounding boards and they're constantly learning and students of the game. Um, so just under, just, I think I would just encourage people to understand that it takes a village and, you know, nobody has all the answers. And so just try and read as many productive things as you can try and, you know, listen to some podcasts of people that you admire and people that have been through really tough times. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I don't know how people go about their life without, without some type of faith and something bigger than themselves. Um, so I think that's something that's really helped me a lot and taught me a lot. Um, so I think that's important regardless of what you believe. And and yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday um, and the the person talking was saying that the most successful people are just addicted to learning and they never want to stop learning. Um, so it's just something that you've got to go out and reach out. And as a head coach, it can be kind of lonely if you don't handle it well. You can always, you can feel like you don't have that many people to talk to, but you've got to be vulnerable and you've got to reach out to people for advice um, because it is a tough job. And you've got tough decisions and you've got 18 to 22 year old young men and women under your watch and under your responsibility. And if you take it as a huge responsibility, there's a lot of pressure there. Um, not just the winning part, but more importantly, to making, making sure that they're prepared for life when they leave. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I mean, I would just encourage people to, to read a lot and, and to, to find people they, they admire to ask questions to. Okay, let's move into our rapid fire. What is your favorite drill to do with your team? Let's just say I'm a big believer in our guys owning their shots. 
So we do a lot of consistency drills where I, I challenge the guys to play at the highest tempo possible, um, but they've got to make a certain amount of balls in a row. Um, we do that a lot. Um, I really think it's good for the mind. It's good for the body. And, and they just, they develop so many things while they develop so many things in the long rally. Mm -hmm. And are, are they doing that in a closed situation where they have to play through the middle or through the corners or is it open? All in all different types of ways. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, you were talking about the importance of, of reading. Is there a book that's had a major impact on you as a coach? Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite books is, is the president's club and it's just stories about all the, I think the president since, since Truman and everything that they went through and, 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 and how they actually, the, really what the book is about is how these, how current presidents reached out to former presidents for advice when they went through tough times. That's what the book is about. And so again, it's, you know, U.S. presidents are humbling themselves and going to their predecessors and saying across party lines and saying, hey, I'm going through this right now. How would you handle it? And mm -hmm. so I, that that book really um, one of my favorites. OK, so how often is Joe Biden calling Donald Trump, you think? <laughs> it's probably not happening, unfortunately. Um, we won't be reading gosh, that book. I, yeah, I wish <laughs> I wish that wasn't the case in, in D.C. right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah we shouldn't laugh um all right the um should the ncaa individual tournament be in the fall or the spring i'm gonna say the fall i'm gonna have an open mind and and see see how it see how it works in the fall um you know at first i would say at first i said spring but thinking about it more i actually feel like you get a lot more developmental work with your players at tournaments because they're in the fire and yep. and uh, I, I heard that from from a, a national coach, a Stan Boster, uh, once said to me that I develop my players on the road at tournaments. And I was like, you know what? That's actually true. And so a lot of coaches think that putting the NCAA tournament in the fall makes it less developmental. But I actually think it could be more developmental because they're going to want to compete more. And, and then, you know, you can test what you're working on in practice uh, while yeah. they're in the fire, which is very difficult. But We'll see how it works, but I'm going to say fall. All right. Um, so what would you be doing today if you were not a college tennis coach? I mean, probably, I don't know. I'd like to dream that I'd be in D.C., you know, working in the government in some capacity. Okay. I love politics and foreign policy and international relations and stuff like that. So I, I love that stuff. Okay. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? So honestly, this might be a little cheesy, but growing up, my parents always told me, stay close with your brothers, form an alliance with your brothers. They're always going to be there for you. I have three younger brothers and they've always been there for me. They've always got my back. So, and they've just been a rock for me in so many ways. So I think that's probably the best piece of advice that, that I've received in my life, which is a tough question, but, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, that's that's something I always think about. No, that's cool. Um, and who is your favorite college player of all time that you did not coach, but you wish you did? Any generation. Um, well, I would have loved to have known and coached Arthur Ashe. Hmm. Uh, that would have been really cool. But 
more contemporary, I'd have to say Samdev Devarman, um, just because I've heard so many stories of him um, during his time here at UVA. And, you know, Tread Huey's on, on our staff now, and, and he's he's got some great Samdev stories. And um, Samdev has spoken to the guys before, and um, I know the guys loved it. So probably Samdev. Yeah, yeah, I loved watching him play for sure. Well, Andres, we did we did it. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure, and and uh, wishing you and the team all the all the luck in the world come twenty twenty four. Thanks, thanks for having me. Listen, before I go off, I just want to thank the ITA for everything you all do for college tennis. There's a lot of things you guys do that you know not enough people say thank you for. So thank you for everything. Um, you know, we wouldn't. I wouldn't have a job. A lot of us, you know, wouldn't have a job if. We wouldn't have a job if you all didn't do the work that you do. So, so thank you. And the other thing I'll say is I'm going to congratulate college coaches in general because they're trying really hard. It's be, they, they're making this so much more professionalized. The resources are incredible. The experience has only gotten better. And now the best, the very best juniors in the world are considering college as a viable stepping stone. Yeah. to a successful career on the pro tour and i give all the college coaches credit because everyone's trying so hard it's so competitive i don't care who you play you lose that doubles point and it's a dog fight and there's yeah. so many good players so congratulations to all the college coaches because college tennis is it's only going up yeah absolutely no great call out and, and people are taking notice right the atp obviously wta itf <laughs> usta uh, everybody's taking notice of all the hard work that everyone's doing. So appreciate you calling that out, Andreas. And uh, yeah, let's keep keep going. Let's keep going. We're not slowing Absolutely. down anytime soon.